Welcome to the Definitely Uncertain podcast. I'm Darren Rockman. This week, we're starting our best of series, a look back at some of the best podcasts that we've recorded over the last couple of years. And this week, we're going to go back and have a look at Bitcoin, a podcast that we recorded over a year ago with Michael Sonnenstein of Grayscale. And in light of all the things that have happened in this crypto market and the Bitcoin market, it's really worth going back and having to listen to what he said. So enjoy, everybody. This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Gold Rock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast. My name is David Ram. I'm a partner at Goldrock Capital, a 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors across the globe. With me today is Michael Sonnenschein, the CEO of Grayscale Investments, a multi-billion dollar investment company exclusively focused on digital currency. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Fantastic. Uh, so the main topic that we're going to talk about today is going to be Bitcoin and its increasing acceptance as an asset class. Uh, but perhaps uh, to begin uh, for our audience, you could briefly introduce yourself, uh, introduce the company a little bit. Love to hear about as well your personal entrepreneurial story as well. That'd be very interesting to hear. Happy to do so. So again, Michael Sonnenschein, man, uh, CEO now uh, of Grayscale Investments, um, was uh, recently uh, brought into the role from managing director of the firm. Um, Grayscale Investments is a New York-based digital currency asset management business. Uh, we manage today about $25 billion uh, spread across a family of 10 investment products. Um, personally, I have uh, had a career in traditional financial services, did my kind of tour of duty, if you will, at a couple of different bulge bracket banks, uh, and then had the fortunate pleasure of meeting our founder, Barry Silbert, in early 2014. Um, at the time, um, Barry had a lot of people telling him he was crazy uh, for wanting to build businesses around Bitcoin and the digital currency asset class. However, um, I took a leap of faith and joined him. And uh, he told me, you know, this is the opportunity to be a part of building something. And that's what we've gone and done. Um, when I joined Barry, we had started running a Bitcoin investment vehicle that had about $60 million of assets in it. Hmm. Um, and over the years, I've partnered with him, uh, worked very closely with him, and was recently named CEO of what has now become a full-fledged asset management business, Grayscale Investments. And so Grayscale really has long believed now that digital currencies as an asset class have not only arrived, but are here to stay, and investors want access to them. They exist outside of the traditional channels where investors are making capital allocation decisions. So where investors typically may buy a stock or a bond or an ETF, the, the pipes are just not built there yet for digital assets. And so Grayscale has followed the models of other investment product families, be it PIMCO or WisdomTree or mm -hmm. iShares, and have built a whole family of products so investors can access this asset class and negates the need for them to figure out where to source these assets, how to transfer them, hold them, safe keep them. 
So today we have nine single currency products, a product that's long only Bitcoin, long only Ethereum, long only Litecoin, et cetera. And then our 10th fund is a diversified basket of digital assets. And so today we're the largest digital currency asset manager in the world. We offer some of the only publicly traded instruments um, here in the US that offer exposure to digital assets. And we really become the partner of choice for you know, primarily accredited investors, high net worth investors, family offices, hedge funds, and institutions looking for digital currency exposure in their portfolios. That's super interesting and helpful. Uh, yeah, that, that last point you made around the accredited investor, the institutional investor, which is clearly getting a lot more traction uh, in very recent uh, months, I guess is one of the reasons why I reached out to you because uh, I'm trying to get a, an understanding as to whether or not uh, uh, cryptocurrency or Bitcoin in particular has a place or should have a, a core allocation within a high net worth portfolio. And that's probably going to be the, you know, the concluding uh, uh, bullet point of our conversation. But I, I want to get there uh, um, in multiple steps, if that's okay. Um, so just going right into it, well, first let me ask a quick follow-up question. On, the, uh, on, the, on those products you mentioned, is the vast majority of the assets that you have uh, under management in the, in the Bitcoin products alone, or is it in the multi-asset uh, products? It is. So we again, we have 10 products. The lion's share of the assets we manage are in our long-only Bitcoin fund called Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Um, I would also disclaim that it's not necessarily a fair apples to apples comparison because each of these products have been launched at different time periods throughout Grayscale's history. Um, and certainly um, we've, sent, we've seen historically that investors usually first allocation to this asset class uh, is in Bitcoin. So that product is our flagship fund and, and does constitute the lion's share of our assets. Got you. So I may use the word Bitcoin and maybe affect it's related to all the uh, cryptocurrencies, but we'll just use the word Bitcoin more or less. But as a as a quasi uh, Bitcoin skeptic, I, I, there's a few components uh, of my skepticism, and I wanted to walk through a couple of those points with you and get your feedback. So the first point is um, the asset itself seems to uh, be an asset that the value is only created once it is more widely used as a transactional currency. And in the meantime, there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of volatility as well, and it seems to be uh, mitigating its ability to become a transactional currency. So it seems to it seems to me at least that the value today, which is quite significant, even though it's been quite volatile the past few days, um, that uh, the value is based on the expectation that there may be uh, a transactional currency in the future, but today it's not. So what what's the value today? Is it worth? waiting a little bit longer till there's more visibility in that risk? Or, or do you just completely disagree with what I just said? <laughs> um, I think respectfully, I disagree with what you said. Um, I think we don't view Bitcoin today and how it's being used and why it's being invested in as a currency in the traditional sense of the definition of a currency, uh, be it the dollar, the euro, the yen, etc. And we're certainly not running around telling people that Bitcoin is going to replace any of these fiat currencies. Hmm. Today, Bitcoin is primarily being invested in um, for speculative purposes, um, as primarily for most investors, as a digital store of value or as a gold 2.0 or a store of value that's much more inclined and kind of fits far better 
with the digital world that we're living in um, versus historical stores of value like gold, um, which may have been much better suited for a world characterized by you know, physical exchanges, barter, et cetera. And so you have to remember Bitcoin has only been around for call it the last you know, 10, 12 years, mm-hmm. and it has been wildly successful. I mean, this was an idea that came out of thin air and the fact that you now have financial services incumbents, some of the largest companies in the world um, offering products and services around Bitcoin. You have futures markets. You know, Bitcoin futures trade now alongside assets that have been around for millennia, orange juice and copper and gold and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, you have some of the world's most famous and, and, and storied investors very publicly coming out in support of Bitcoin and, and putting capital to work in Bitcoin. I think... You know, what we've seen over the past, call it 10 or 12 years, is no shortage of naysayers believing that Bitcoin was a Ponzi scheme or was a fad that was going to fade out. And what we've seen is that Bitcoin has really continued to be challenged in every which way possible. And each time it does, or each time it's called dead or left for dead, it somehow emerges even stronger. And I think 2020 was no exception to that rule. When you look at what happened in March when there was this massive deleveraging in the market as COVID you know, brought the entire global economy to a grinding halt, crypto sold off Bitcoin in particular even more so than you saw in traditional asset classes like equities. And it really demonstrated its resiliency over the course of the year and ended up becoming one of, if not the highest returning asset um, or investment of 2020. And I think for many investors, 2020 was the year that solidified in their mind that this asset class has true staying power. And I would say that there is no longer any kind of career or reputational risk for investors to be allocating to this asset class like there may have once been. And that the way in which we've seen central banks and policymakers react to COVID um, and the slowdown of economies globally is really to print money. Um, And it seems like printing money is something that is going to continue for quite some time. And that has caused many investors to really think about one of Bitcoin's most important attributes, which is that it has verifiable scarcity. There is only going to be 21 million Bitcoin ever created. And when you think about the juxtaposition between an asset that has verifiable scarcity versus fiat currencies, which seemingly are going to be diluted and printed in perpetuity, it's caused many, many investors to get eager and excited and solidified in their view that their portfolios warrant inclusion of an asset that has those kinds of attributes. How how many of the 21 million are in circulation today? So there's about 18 and a half million uh, Bitcoin in circulation uh, today. Um, and so over time, there will we'll see the remainder of that two and a half million come into circulation, but it's an asymptotic curve. Um, so the supply rate of Bitcoin is very known and very predictable. And so we can model out, you know, how many Bitcoin will be in circulation a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. But ultimately, it will take another 120 years, right? Right around the year 2140, we can very predictably model out that the 21 million Bitcoin will be created. Okay. And so what you have, David, I think is one of the most interesting 
um, supply demand dynamics at play that that create price discovery. And what you see in the market is an asset that has known predictable and verifiably scarce supply. But every single day, there are more and more individuals, corporations, institutions, investors demanding or getting involved in the asset. And so that's obviously become and sure. could very well increasingly become accretive to the Bitcoin price. That's interesting because obviously, like every market, supply and demand drives price. But when you when you all of a sudden have major market players entering the market in 2020, whether it's because of the printing of the from the Fed or otherwise, uh, or fear of the US dollar, or just frankly, uh, a natural progression of the acceptance of the asset. Uh, and when you have a very limited amount of increase of that asset, because you just mentioned the, the, the scarcity aspect of it, I guess by definition, the price is going to go up, whether what, you know, no matter what you do, the price is probably going to go up for a little while. I, but but just to make sure I understand the answer regarding regarding the utility, because 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 one of the pushbacks always uh, uh, against Bitcoin is is yeah okay it's a scarcity it's digital uh, we live in a, di a different world today than we used to live in four thousand years ago when gold was the currency I get it sure. um, but at the same time the reason why gold or the reason why other assets oil other commodities have a, a, a fundamental value is because there's utility to that to, to those assets. Sure. Uh, so beyond uh, a transactional uh, potential, what is the utility of a digital currency? So I think that we need to kind of remind ourselves that today in the developed world, the world that you and I live in, that we have access to financial services in any which way we, we want. We can get loans, we can get credit cards, we can get bank accounts, and there's scores of financial institutions that are willing to do business with us. But half the world's adult population doesn't have access to financial services. Um, no bank accounts, no lending, no financing of a business or entrepreneurship, et cetera. And so we, we believe um, that one of the killer use cases for Bitcoin and digital currencies broadly is actually financial inclusion, mm -hmm. um, that it can ultimately become a transactional currency, particularly because a lot of the geographies where these individuals live their fiat currencies um, are either being inflated out of existence or somehow being manipulated, um, in which case they're eager to own anything other than their fiat currency in, in their local, um, you know, local geography. And so it's going to take some time for that realization to, to bear fruit or, or, or actually, um, you know, be a realized use case for Bitcoin. But today, the utility, the use case for Bitcoin is primarily as a digital store of value, as a digital version of gold. Mm -hmm. What we're focused on is really the fact that we are on the precipice of seeing about $68 trillion of wealth pass from older generations, um, baby boomers and, and, and older generations down to millennials and Gen Z over about the next 25 years. And when we think about the way that those assets are postured today, um, we're not trying to say that all 68 trillion of that is going to move its way into Bitcoin or digital assets, but we'd certainly be remiss to believe that some portion of it is not going to find its way into that. Younger generations have not had a tangible experience with gold. It doesn't resonate with them. Um, and when you really look at Bitcoin versus gold, um, you really begin to see that Bitcoin has far better portability than gold. It's far more 
uh, divisible than gold um, and is actually verifiably scarce, unlike gold, which we believe is scarce, but we somehow keep finding additional deposits of it. And so as you kind of start comparing and contrasting the two assets, mm -hmm. not to mention what we touched on before, um, which is, you know, something like Bitcoin, which can be sent anywhere in the world, you know, seamlessly and virtually for free, um, you, you found yourself an asset which very quickly begins to outshine gold. And so what we're seeing, quite frankly, is a rotation out of historical stores of value like gold and into assets like Bitcoin. Right. And I think a lot of that's evidence, not just through the incredible capital inflows that we've seen at grayscale into our products, not to mention the acceleration of the Bitcoin price, but seeing that at the same time where over the last quarter of 2020, gold investment products saw some of the largest outflows they've ever had on record. And yeah. so that rotation is underway. And I'd say that probably Bitcoin's killer use case hasn't even been identified yet or come to fruition yet. But that's not to say that Bitcoin can't or won't be massively successful as well if it does nothing more than take share of the gold market or become mm. the store of value or inflation hedge for the next generation of investors. Right. It's probably around, I assume, about 5% or so of the market cap, if you think in terms of value versus gold today, right? So you got some catching up, which I guess you're on the way. In catching up or, or you could also look at it as opportunity, right? Right. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, in second question I have re relating to uh, Bitcoin as a skeptic relates to the custody of the asset itself. Uh, so, you know, obviously investors, they buy the S&P 500 and iShares, you mentioned iShares earlier. It sits in their, you know, in their active broker account. Uh, you know, there's insurance around it. There's, there's, there's uh, trust around it. How does someone get comfortable around the actual custody of the of Bitcoin as an asset class, as an asset, um, and especially when a lot of institutions seemingly won't, uh, currently won't hold it in, in one's account. If you open up, a, I don't know, a Goldman Sachs account, you can't own Bitcoin in your Goldman Sachs account. So That's exactly right. So I would say, you know, as I mentioned, digital assets like Bitcoin, um, the pipes and the rails that govern the transactions and the movement of those assets don't yet speak to the incumbent system that we have where investors are allocating to you know stocks and bonds and ETFs and mutual funds etc which is mm -hmm. probably should be interpreted as why bitcoin actually is a great opportunity right because a lot of those bridges have not been built yet and so today there is no shortage of really reputable exchanges and companies where investors can buy and sell digital currency directly, and those companies will hold it on behalf of, of them as an individual investor. We've now seen the likes of even companies like PayPal and Square, you know, offering you know, the ability for investors to do that. Yeah. Um, despite that, though, I'd say that we are seeing the emergence of really some amazing infrastructure being built that will cause those bridges and those pipes to be filled so that Bitcoin um, and other digital assets can move as seamlessly within the types of accounts and the types of um, transactions that investors are used to seeing with other allocations. However, I would say that for many investors, their mandates don't allow for the custodianship of a bearer asset, right? So today, if you're a hedge fund or a family office, et cetera, you may not, one, have the technological know-how or comfort to, to 
hold an asset like Bitcoin. Um, it may not fit within your legal and operational framework. And I think that's why we've seen so many people coming to firms like Grayscale, where they can get that exposure, but do so through an, an asset that has a titled security um, that, that has a QCIP, that's audited, produces financial statements, et cetera. And that's not to say that both of these realms won't continue to develop, right? We've, we've seen investors not only want to hold gold directly, but they also may hold a gold ETF or gold investment product. So sure. I think you'll see the development of both of those realms, both products and funds re related to digital assets, as well as folks who want to you know, directly hold this asset over time. But is there a worry inside the financial institutional market around uh, their inability to guarantee that their clients can actually access that asset? Because, you know, I saw, I mean, this is a ridiculous example, but I saw yesterday in the news that some guy owns, I don't know, 7,000 Bitcoin he bought like 10 years ago and he forgot his password. Uh, mm -hmm. And he doesn't know how to, he has like $200 million worth of Bitcoin and he can't, and he can't access any. I think you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a, is a bearer instrument. And again, to the extent that you may not have the comfort um, or technological know-how to handle it, you know, there, there isn't a 1-800 number that you can call to have your password reset or a link that you can, right. um, you know, do. And so that's, you know, I think also why a lot of investors propensity is to invest in, in funds and investment products as opposed mm. to, to holding it directly. Um, but the comfort is growing around incumbent financial institutions ability to do that. Just think, thinking through the fact that Bitcoin is shown to the eighth decimal place, many of these financial institutions accounting systems don't even go out that many decimal places, mm -hmm. right? They don't have APIs that speak to digital currency exchanges yet. Um, you know, so so we're we're really on the precipice of seeing a lot of that infrastructure being built. But to your point, a lot of it is not there yet, and that's also why a lot of investors, I think, feel like it's a it's a ripe opportunity. Interesting. Uh, third, it relates to regulation. Uh, it, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm an American, I'm an Israeli, whatever. But in terms of the currency, the fiat currency related to that, uh, there's a lot of value the country, the government itself has in ensuring they can wield power through their fiat currencies, be it global trade, be it foreign policy, et cetera. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you don't see necessarily Bitcoin as a replacement of fiat currency, but obviously the more and more prevalent Bitcoin could become in terms of transactional value in the future or store of value even as, a, as opposed to the dollar being a store of value, uh, that may reduce, as we saw in 2020, or a weakening uh, of the US dollar or other major currencies so if I was the U.S. government and I saw a major threat to my fiat currency, which is an important power for, for a government, be it the European Union or the U.S. or others, I would do whatever I could to ensure that currency does not succeed. And it seems pretty simple, honestly, for the U.S. government to come out with some financial regulation and to shut this thing down overnight. Yeah. So how do you identify that so I think it's a patchwork um, globally. Um, I, I'll say a little bit about kind of the U.S.'s posture to this asset. So we've seen um, quite clear guidance from, you know, the SEC, um, the CFTC, the IRS, uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, Treasury, um, all coming out and, you know, making declarative statements around 
the usage, the taxation, and the classification of assets like Bitcoin mm -hmm. um, and assets like Ethereum. Um, I think it remains to be seen um, what their posture will or won't be around other digital assets as the asset class continues to grow. But I would also venture to share that we've even seen um, you know, folks like the U.S. Marshall Service auction off Bitcoin that they've seized, right? And so I think it'd be quite difficult for them to have sold something to the general public that mm -hmm. they would be able to then turn around subsequently in the future and say the asset that we previously sold to you is now in fact illegal, right? So I, I think you're seeing um, outside the US, other other nations, you know, be it Singapore or parts of, of, of you know, Europe and other places that are developing similar or quite positive postures towards this asset class as well. And I think that they're all waking up to not only the efficiencies and um, the savings and the oversight that can be enjoyed by leveraging digital assets and blockchain technology, and that's why you've also seen such a heated, heated effort um, around the emergence and development of central bank digital currencies. Um, I'm of the belief that in our lifetimes, you know, the U.S. dollar may very well reside on a blockchain, um, and that will not necessarily compete with or displace or replace Bitcoin mm -hmm. um, because it will still be a, a centrally governed, you know, where policies are made. Um, to dictate interest rates and and um, printing and retracting and um, you know kind of a lot of the attributes that decentralized networks like Bitcoin purposely do not possess and so there is no reason why these two different ecosystems can't coexist over time. Yeah, no, it's interesting because what I've been noticing as a as a family office when we uh, deal with various client bank accounts. What I've noticed over the past number of years, it's called 10 years, is that they're, because of security issues on the technology side, because of cyber uh, threats, et cetera, bank policy in terms of transaction uh, approvals, et cetera, have gone back in time, not forward in time. And you know now you have to do uh, callbacks on every dollar transacted in the account. They have to have a voice recognition. They have to meet in person to sign certain documents. It's sure. actually gone back in time due to security uh, risks that have taken place within very large uh, banks. Obviously, blockchain is a somewhat of a security uh, platform as well. But, mm -hmm. but moving into the digital world, the entire currency, do, do central governments, do, do you guys identify uh, that as a major risk? You know, I, I, my, my view was that, not my view, but it, see, it seems that we're moving toward a time where we're going back, where we're going to have to carry around our... Uh, our, our money in bags and make sure uh, you know, it's all, uh, everything is clear and everything is ours. And you know, it's I don't know about carrying money around in bags, <laughs> but I will say, um, as folks really dig into the inextricable tie between digital currencies and the underlying blockchain technologies that they reside on, you come to realize that blockchain provides verifiable ownership of assets and the ability to trace and be able to perfectly understand who's involved in what transactions in a way that's irrefutable and immutable. Mm -hmm. And there has now really been the emergence of some fantastic companies 
whose business, um, who, whose service, in fact, is blockchain surveillance and monitoring. Mm. And some of their largest customers are government agencies, FBI, um, mm. you know, wh whatever it may be, because any and all transactions done in these assets for, for lack of a better analogy, basically leave a digital breadcrumb. And so whereas transactions, be them nefarious or not, that are conducted in cash, really have no ability to be traced, transactions done using digital assets certainly can be and actually provide that additional layer of oversight and scrutiny that is actually really favorable and, and helpful to law enforcement, um, and, and other actors as well that have an interest in being able to monitor transactions um, and, and ultimately catch bad guys doing bad things. So if yeah. you entered this conversation believing that Bitcoin or other digital assets was a good means for doing something nefarious, please let me make sure that you walk away from our conversation knowing that this is probably the worst method of doing something the least bit nefarious so that you wouldn't want to be caught doing because right. again, every transaction leaves a digital breadcrumb. That's interesting. I saw a recent uh, uh, study that it's less than 1% now of Bitcoin transactions are uh, more in the nefarious area. They all have to go back to cash or barter or whatever it may be. So, yeah. So we, Compa we compare that with with uh, the cash in your wallet. You know, how, yeah. how many bad transactions has each of those bills, you know, been a part of at some point? Absolutely. Uh, so we, we discussed uh, the custody aspect, regulation. By the way, regulation seems almost like an opportunity from what you described as well, meaning you, I, I would assume that there's almost a welcoming effect from a regulatory perspective because then it would actually have increase its acceptance. So we discussed regulation, custody, security. Now I want to ask a question to you. What do you when you think about Bitcoin in, in the future, uh, what do you worry about? Uh, where do you see the, the major risks of the adoption uh, and value of Bitcoin as an asset class? I think my biggest fear has long been um, the idea of patience. Um, there's been a prevalent impatience um, broadly around the asset class. You know, why is why are more people not using it? Why am I not buying a latte, you know, with with Bitcoin? And and why isn't the price higher? And and why isn't the monetary base in it bigger? And um, and I hope that that folks don't grow too impatient with the asset class because from my seat, having been in the asset class since you know early 2014, I, I can't believe how far it's come. You know, mm. new asset classes are not born every day, um, and you know this to me is a once in a generation um, kind of opportunity. And the fact that we now have, again, some of the world's most famous investors investing, some of the largest incumbent financial institutions providing products and services around this asset class. We have futures, we have a healthy two-sided market, derivatives, borrowing and lending, et cetera. This asset class has come along very, very quickly in a very, very short time, faster than probably anything else ever has historically. And so investors um, need not be impatient with it and need not believe that its success is going to be tied to, again, buying a latte with Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a latte with Bitcoin in order for it to be deemed successful. Um, and so I think as folks really drill in on the attributes that make it differentiated from things like gold and also look at just the risk reward opportunity, um, they'd be hard pressed to find other opportunities that, that may be as compelling. That's interesting. Yeah, because I saw 
I saw as well, not only as there have been massive institutional interest, but also the corporate balance sheets are, are shifting from, in some companies at least, uh, are shifting from U.S. dollar to Bitcoin. Yeah. I hope they have the patience as well uh, that you're, that you're uh, suggesting uh, to hold that asset for a long time. That's interesting. Uh, no, this, is, this has been great. And um, where, where can people find you, uh, Grayscale Investments, if anyone's interested in utilizing your platform to access the asset class? What would be the best way to do that? Yeah, um, certainly happy to engage with any and everyone and, and be a resource to the community. If you visit our website, grayscale.co, um, we have a wealth of resources, a library of primers on digital assets, portfolio construction with digital assets, et cetera. And certainly if folks are interested in allocating capital to the Grayscale products, there is a start investing button at the top right of the of the page on the Grayscale website um, and look forward to, to being a resource and, and being helpful to anyone interested um, in what we do or the asset class as a whole. That's great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for uh, for joining. And uh, this has been super interesting. Uh, and thank you all to, for listening to the Definitely Uncertain podcast by Goldwright Capital. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, David. Take care. Take care.